0: My name is Dario Hasenstab, I have a degree in International Affairs, and I'm here with Balder Hagrats a former university professor of mine, as well as an IR consultant. And together, we're bursting the Western Bubble. Today we will analyze how to understand human rights through the lens of the Western Bubble. Because while Western societies have many strengths and significant weaknesses, in order to analyze these, we use the concept of the Western Bubble. If you would like to know more about, about this concept, how this podcast started, or who we are, make sure to listen to our introduction episode. Um, First, a bit of housekeeping. This is our 11th episode. Uh, The previous 10 episodes were a bit of a trial run this summer since we're not very experienced at podcasts. We've reviewed these past episodes and made some minor changes going forward. Most importantly, we'll we'll answer listeners' questions at the beginning of each recording. So if you have any questions or comments about the past episodes, please make sure to contact us at the new email address TheWesternBubble@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Please indicate if you'd like to be named or if you would like to remain anonymous. Um, we kept most of the structure and questions from before. However, in order to streamline a bit, we're saying goodbye to the question, what is the personal bias? From now on, we will continue with what are the facts in two minutes? What is the bubble? What is the problem? And finally, what now? Um, so before we start with today's episode, uh, we we want to answer the question of the of the week sent in from you, the listeners. This week's question comes from one of our listeners from Madrid, um, and the person asked, "Do you think that there's a way to reverse or slow down the Western decadence that you describe within the bubble, Boulder, That's a that's a pretty straightforward question. Um, so, so, what's what's your answer to this? I, I don't think I've made up my mind yet
1: it uh, is a very good question it's one of those questions that is harder to answer than sort of the critical tone that we've used uh, in this podcast so far because often it is it's easier to analyze and critically evaluate something than come up with positive solutions right because this question essentially saying is there something we can do to to make it all better uh and that's 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 always a very productive productive kind of conversation now I would like to think so. The uh, Theoretically, the answer is a definitive yes. There's no doubt that, in principle, uh, we can take steps as a society to reverse the, the decadence, to reverse the, the weakness of Western society, and to go back to what made us strong and what made us go in an upward direction. However, in practice, I would think that it's a bit harder to implement because what it requires is for us to go back to the core issues of what make Western society strong in the first place, which is, yes, a focus on individual rights, to put it in the uh, context of today's episode, uh, individual uh, strengths, encourage individuals to make the best out of themselves and their own lives, but also a broader understanding and belief in our society, Uh, understanding that there's something bigger than your own personal convictions, your own personal political tribe, and that you need to work towards good governance within your society. And that is independent from whether you are left-wing or right-wing or whether you belong to one uh, specific social tribe or another uh, specific social tribe. And I think from a practical perspective, that's quite hard nowadays because we've gone into a hyper-individualistic Mode where we are all about us individually, and whether my rights are being trampled on, whether I am um, being respected by my surroundings, rather than how do I contribute to this stronger, more prosperous, overall society with a good governance system to manage it all.
0: See, when I read this question for the first time, uh, my immediate reaction was no. Um, Because that would take away the reason for this podcast's existence. Um, But I started out by asking myself the question, well, has the Western decadence um, that we've described throughout all the episodes, has it basically been growing bigger in the past few years or maybe even, even going down? And I was thinking that during, especially in Europe, during the refugee crisis uh, of 2015-2016 of and then during the initial two years of the Trump administration, it seemed like there was some form of reflection happening within the West. However, since the Russian invasion of Ukraine um, about six months ago, I think that uh, this maybe process that, that was there has gone in complete reverse and that the Western decadence has become worse, simply because... Now it's, again, this feeling of the West against the rest. Um, you're either with us or against us in our struggle against the, the evil Russia. And that basically, the West needs to uphold the system and human rights. We're getting there in a, in a moment. So I think it's definitely possible. Um, but I think that the past six months have moved us further away from this process than we may have been Um, a few years ago
1: yeah there's nothing worse uh, to create a bubble of self-entitlement and 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 self you know misplaced self-worth if you like than having a clearly identifiable enemy right and and putin and and russia with their invasion gave us this this clearly identifiable bad guy that we can then use to say look we are amazing because they are really bad uh, and I think that's exactly what's be, what's been happening and I think that's what you're what you're saying puts exactly the finger on on the issue that we need to focus on the first step needs to be acknowledgement and this sounds extremely simple and straightforward but it's not uh, for our society at the moment acknowledge that we do not as a society have an objective truth that we're not necessarily um, that we don't necessarily have the magic formula uh, that the rest of humanity needs to follow. It is about us acknowledging that, yes, we have some really good things, but our system is historically untested and is potentially fragile. And we have to work really, really hard to prove our place in history. And, And right now we're not doing that. right? We're not working hard to show history that we can actually make something out of our society and our system. And as a result, we we engage in this decadence, to quote the the questioner.
0: And I think this is a really good moment for our listeners um, to also answer this question for themselves. And maybe let us know your thoughts uh, on whether you think it is possible, and if so, in what way uh, the West could reverse or slow down its own decadence uh, that we have numerously described uh, within the Western bubble. And now moving on to the main topic of the day, uh, human rights. And we are, as always, starting with our first question. What are the facts in two minutes? The Institutional Foundation for Modern Human Rights is the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, agreed upon after the Second World War. This went hand-in-hand with the actual establishment of the United Nations and was a culmination of 80 years of institutional development, starting with the Geneva Convention of 1864. The Universal Declaration has been the source of various types of national and international legislation, and legal, and legal frameworks. It is also very commonly used to criticize the behavior of international actors when engaging in destructive behavior. Many global institutions, including the European Court of Justice or the International Criminal Court, are heavily indebted to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. The United Nations defines human rights as the rights that are inherent to all human beings, regardless of race, sex, nationality, ethnicity, language, religion or any other status. Human rights include the right to life and liberty, freedom from slavery and torture, freedom of opinion and expression, the right to work and education, and many more. Everyone is entitled to these rights without discrimination. What is the bubble? And now that we're talking about um, what is the bubble, uh, let's let's first uh, maybe talk about uh, the definition that I just read out from the United Nations, because I think there's a lot to unpack here uh, with regards to what is the bubble uh, what what to you if you had to pick one of the one of the things i just wrote out is the most striking uh, part that is, that screams western bubble
1: what screams western bubble here is is clearly the the focus on certain types of uh, values that are very much like a 20th century uh, western approach to the world right where the west is uh, busy in its um Uh, process of uh, women's emancipation right Um, um, two generations or one generation before women got the right to vote women are still um, sort of suffering through patriarchal structures in the mid-20th century and so they include um, regardless of sex Uh, the other thing is uh, the focus on slavery this in a con and race in a context of the united states just about getting into the whole civil rights movement after a very difficult, complex uh, period of the civil war in the 19th century and then uh, race relations afterwards. Uh, The freedom of opinion and expression very, very clearly focused on individual liberty uh, along the lines of the West, uh, not in any way necessarily a universal common moral framework but very much a western western product
0: yeah i mean it's, for me it was uh, the same uh, life and liberty i, I was surprised i was surprised that it didn't include the pursuit of happiness as well um just to to, to make it even more western u.s focus um, but then moving on from the pure definition of of human rights from the united nations western i mean because it was born out of the of the end of, uh, of World War II, and so the, the, the nations that won, won the World War. Uh, let's actually start all the way at the beginning and give a bit of a, of a historical overview of how the bubble um, came together. What do you think is, what's the first time in history that we can look at, not at human rights in general, but at the creation of the human rights as we know them today?
1: Right, so here we should start by saying that that as we know them today is 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 the, the Western set of human rights, right? And and the fact that they're Western, the ones that we have today, doesn't mean that they're automatically bad. It just means that it's important to realize that they're Western. So the historical path that leads us there is also a Western or if you like mostly European historical path. Um, that is not to say that a lot of the values of, Uh, human rights in the 21st century reflect values from all kinds of other cultures and civilizations as well before listeners get upset that we're too Eurocentric, right? Uh, This uh, The current form of human rights is clearly once again a Western project and that is not something to boast about that is just an observation um, and in fact one of the problems that we will discuss in this episode, I'm sure. So historically, uh, you could, this goes all the way back, if you like, to Greek philosophy in, in, in a European uh, context. Uh, it is an attempt by philosophers and um, often certain social movements to counterbalance potential abuse by governments because it comes from the idea of natural law. The idea that every human being, regardless of what kind of society they live in, is entitled to certain... Uh, basic rights that cannot be taken away from them by a government, right? It's, it's a way to counterbalance potential oppression by the state. And so uh, Christian natural law um, started as a counterbalance to potential non-Christian governments, right? The idea that because there is a God in heaven who provides us with a basic Foundation for morality. There's no government that can take that away from us because there's always something higher than that government, namely the deity that we believe in. Um, so these uh, Christian philosophers, people like uh, Thomas Aquinas and and others, started delving into what does this actually mean and how can we create a set of values that should always be present regardless of who's in charge of society. And then a little bit uh, later down the line, these natural uh, laws and natural rights start uh, being used as a counterbalance to the Westphalian system, the the system that was being set up in the seventeenth century, that very much focused on um, on on state power and, and 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 the the ultimate authority that the state has.
0: I, I think I think here we have to. Um, because to an international relations student, uh, the, the Westphalian system or the Peace of Westphalia from uh, 1648 is, is a clear concept. But I think for, for our other listeners, uh, we, we might have to explain what the Westphalian system exactly is or, or just why, it's so Im- why it is so important for international relations.
1: So the Westphalian system is still the system that we have nowadays. It is, it is in many ways the, the foundational rules that apply to international relations in 2022, namely the idea that our world is cut up into separate sovereign areas, territories, and each of those territories is controlled by its own national state, the state of Spain, the state of the United States, the state of China, and they decide what happens with their own territory. They're sovereign over their own territory, and they're not allowed to interfere into the territory of others. And once again, to emphasize the, the Eurocentrism of our global system, this comes from a very specific European experience. This comes from the religious wars of the uh, 15, well, start of 15th, 16th, 17th century, where you had the ultimate authority of the Vatican and the Holy Roman Empire uh, Emperor, be questioned by the rise of Protestantism, by the rise of people who wanted to reform the church, starting with Martin Luther and others. That led to a roughly a century of very, very destructive violence within Europe. Um, the what would we now what we now would call the German territories Germany obviously didn't exist. They lost about a quarter of their population as a part of, of these religious wars. And there was no solution to it, because um, if you have one group that says the Vatican is the ultimate authority, the Pope is the messenger of God, and um, there's no other way around it. And another group says we do not recognize the Pope as a legitimate legitimate um, representative of God, then um, there is no way to actually create a, a authority that can impose any kind of morality. So what was the answer to that? The answer was let's a- agree to disagree. You do you, and I do I. I do what I want to do. You do what you want to do in your own territory. We're gonna carve up Europe, and then later on the world in different islands that decide over their own moral framework. See.
0: Sí. And, and I just remembered that this is actually the first le- uh, lesson uh, for any international relations student, because you used a lot of the wording that you, um, you, you used uh, in my very first lecture on international relations, which was taught by you. Um, so uh, to our listeners, this is the start to your international relations degree. Um, <laughs> stay posted. But um, moving us back on, on the track with regards to human rights, so, so then how we where human rights at that time or the idea and the concept used to avoid or go move around those well those those areas or those rules that the Westphalian yeah. system clearly established
1: right so wording wise uh you, you wouldn't have human rights you would at the in those days it would be natural rights or natural law um later that moved a little bit towards human um to take some philosophical complication away from it But uh, the problem with this Westphalian approach that we just described is, of course, that it then completely denies exactly what we just mentioned about Christian philosophers, uh, what they had been developing. Because the moment you say the only thing that matters is the territorial state, the government of Spain can decide what happens in Spain, no matter what. And no one else is allowed to interfere with that. That's the moment you take any agency away from the individual. That's the way that you take God out of the equation, you take morality out of the equation, you become basically a system without any prior values. And that is scary. To to give an extreme example, um, if tomorrow Portugal were to commit genocide onto half of its population, technically in a Westphalian system, Spain would not be allowed to interfere into that. Um, and, And that was a completely obvious problem of the Westphalian solution of the 1648 solution, and so already in the decades beforehand, with people like uh, Hugo Grotius, um, for the Dutch listeners, uh, Hugo de Groot, uh, uh, and and others, others scholars were developing ways to sort of soften up a little bit the extreme edges of that, and to still create a system where we could recognize that there's something bigger than the states, that there there are certain values that should not depend on the states, because otherwise you get into very, very scary scenarios. And that makes a lot of sense in many ways. See, what you
0: just said, and I think uh, maybe some of the listeners might have the same thought, Um, this sounds like a stepping stone to the responsibility to protect. Um, This concept that if a horrible crime against humanity is taking place in another territory, then the rules of sovereignty, well, you know what, they no longer apply so much. Uh, because these human rights are are more important, more fundamental uh, than the foundations of of the global order, uh, which I think, yeah, is 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 the is the next step of taking away you kind know, of the rough rough edges of the Westphalian system.
1: That's that's exactly right, and the responsibility to protect is is very very directly closely linked to the whole human rights conversation and. It, it comes from Canada. It comes from a country that has really been pushing for human rights as a as a global tool, as an international relations tool. And you can see philosophically the, the thinking behind it and the value behind it. Again, it makes a lot of sense to not just say, government, you do whatever you do, and nobody else is allowed to interfere. That That in itself makes a lot of sense. But the problem with responsibility to protect is exactly the same with the problem of human rights, unless you define it very clearly and you've got an authority that objectively knows when to implement it, it becomes a huge tool for abuse by those who are powerful. And that's, that's exactly the criticism that we'll talk about later when it comes to human rights, that the, the, the philosophy, the theory behind it makes sense. And I absolutely want to live in a world where we focus on human values, where we focus on what are the principles that we start from. But the moment you turn it into a kind of practical tool is the moment that you go down a very scary, slippery slope with responsibility to protect, as well as with human rights in general.
0: Mm. Um, and then moving on further down the line uh, of, of history, uh, so now we we already talked about the origins of Christian natural law, um, and then now we have the Enlightenment uh, mostly happening in Europe. Uh, so what were I mean, obviously, John Locke comes to mind, um, but how did they shape this? Well, Western perception of human rights.
1: Uh, so, Enlightenment thinking is is a very important part of uh, the Western bubble that we witness today, right? It is it is a refocus on the individual. It is saying uh, philosophically. This started in the 17th century and in the 18th century, then led to revolutions and then practically it became implemented more in the 19th centuries. It's saying this system in Europe that we've got in place with kings and queens and monarchies and principalities deciding over the well-being of humanity is not working very well. We need to create a society where we focus on strengthening um enabling the individual to pursue their own dreams, to pursue their own happiness, to uh, develop their own strength and not have some kind of top-down approach to society. So European Enlightenment, French Enlightenment, and in the case of Locke, British in, in, in Scottish school later on, Enlightenment was well, a very important part of this uh, of this process. Uh, the, the idea that... Europe in 2022 or the West in 2022 has some kind of magic formula can be traced back to the philosophical thinking exactly of those days where where it is all about we've got individuals who have certain rights that cannot be taken away and in the case of John Locke it was very much uh, about life liberty and property right so that was very much the the thing that John Locke focused on um but, but there, were, there were other kinds of emphasis here and there. In the, in the end, it was all about the individual being protected from a potentially abusive state.
0: And that, exactly what you just described, then gets implemented in the social movements of the 19th century.
1: Right, because the 19th century sees this post-industrial revolution change in society, where you have, on the one hand, an increase in middle class... With increasing political power, we discussed this in previous episodes as well, the importance of a middle class feeling that it needs to protect itself in a practical way against an oppressive state or a potentially oppressive state and therefore demanding political reform, while at the same time an industrial revolution that causes a lot of hardship um, not that life in for a peasant in the middle ages was particularly pleasant but all of a sudden you've got large groups of people who are suffering in factories in ins- with insanely long hours in terrible working conditions child labor pollution um, very low living standards for the working class and you've got an obvious reaction to that because this is happening within cities no longer in the countryside that can be controlled by feudal lords And as a result, you you have the rise of the unions, trade unions, supported in many ways by a middle class that has the same concerns, that does not feel comfortable walking down the street and see hungry children in the gutter, um, that does not enjoy having um, to uh, to inhale the, the fumes from factories from down the line in London or Paris. And so you get a politicization of this philosophy of the Enlightenment, where where you've got movements who push for reform. That has has many different aspects to it. It's also the rise of emancipation, of um, gender rights, uh, and it is uh, the right of uh, the workers. um, It is the right of uh, children. All those basic aspects that we take for granted in 2022 find their political start in the uh, early 19th century.
0: And so while these reforms and changes found their start in the 19th century, then we see them being institutionalized through the 20th century.
1: Yeah, um, interestingly enough, the first focus of institutionalization was um, the focus of war, the Geneva Conventions of 1864, uh, because that was easier to manage, right? Uh, the idea that, okay, we've been fighting for millennia against each other. Can we at least agree that there are certain rules to our war, that we don't just shoot prisoners, that that if someone waves a white flag, that they're being respected for it because that benefits us all. So that was the an initial step towards the more complex issues. Um, and then in the 20th century, you see an increasing focus on institutions defending some basic rights and in many ways turning that whole debate about natural rights thomas aquinas and others and and john locke and others into a practical set of um, norms that can be adopted within national legislations that can be adopted within international law if international law is actually a thing which is something that we can debate um, but a, a practical approach to that philosophy that had been developing for hundreds of years within Europe.
0: And so at what moment do we then introduce this extreme element of the individual? So, so not just that we have individual human rights for people, but because everything we've described so far seemed very much like, again, unionization or the middle class being concerned about this. It's never one person fighting for this. It's usually groups and movements. And so at what moment do we introduce the this big, big focus on the individual here?
1: Well, that is sort of a natural result of this European process, right? The, the Even the hyper-individualization that we see in 2022 is part of a very long-term process. It didn't just happen with the internet or with social media. It is, it is a path that goes from a world, a feudal world, where... The individual almost has nothing to stand on. is is directly linked to their lord and their manor. is, is directly linked to their territory where they were born, um, and then slowly detaching themselves from that, that old system by unionization, creating a tribe of like-minded people to defend their interest versus the um, the the fat cats, the the owners of uh, the industrial revolution. the uh, then the focus on, okay, women need uh, to be granted the same rights as men have been granted throughout millennia. How do we do that? By creating groups that fight the system. How do you create that group? Um, having a, a tribal focus on breaking through existing patriarchal barriers. Um, so those groups... Start defining individuals according to certain characteristics. You are poor or you're a worker, so you become part of a trade union. You're a woman, so you become part of the emancipation movement. And that is a necessary process. And that then goes into overdrive into, okay, so now I have defended my rights as a worker. I am part of a union and I I, I only have to work for 40 hours a week and I've got holidays off and all that. This means that I now as an individual... um, can protect my own interest and my own life's environment. And that in itself is a good thing, except when you take it too far, right? Except when it goes into overdrive and you start forgetting that there's something more than just you as an individual. There's something more than just your personal characteristics. There's also the need to have a society that actually... Um, functions well independently of specific political interest groups or ind- independently of whether your tribe gets what it wants. There, there needs to be some kind of sense of accountability, some kind of sense of um, good governance where these, these basic individual rights that European society has been developing over years can be j- truly defended without any political motives beyond that. And what I
0: think is the most interesting aspect of all of this is how long this took. Is that we're talking about centuries here, which I believe, this is just a take of mine, um, is the reason why we feel so strongly about this. It's just that this has, is a concept that we have, we've developed in the West for centuries and something that we, well, we or we people have, have fought for very, very intensively and therefore, we, we feel so strong about this, but this process only happened here, right? We don't see similar developments coming to the same conclusion in other areas of the world.
1: No, even though a lot of the values, the moral, the basic moral values that that were, you know, if we if we go back to those those debates about natural rights, I mean, there are other civilizations that also developed these ideas. Uh, but this this you're absolutely right. This long-term process of going from Westphalia to Enlightenment through the Industrial Revolution to the 20th century institutions and eventually the United Nations and now in the 21st century, hyper-individualism. That kind of process is a very European process and it's something that other countries were kind of forced or other areas in the world were forced to adopt because of the colonial history of our globe, uh, but not because they were natural processes in other parts. And that's what makes us... What, makes, what should make us already suspicious of the phrasing that you read in, initially in the fact sheet about uh, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. There's very little universal about it. It is the product of a very long-term, very deeply ingrained European, Eurocentric North American process.
0: And then what is the difference between this long-term process uh, about human rights and the long-term process, for an example, about the Westphalian system? that the world then
1: adopted? The Westphalian system is exactly what it is. It is a system, and, and it has lots of flaws. We discussed it. It's, it's very problematic to live in a system where technically you're not allowed to intervene even if you see incredible human suffering right across your border. That's a problem. But it is a system with some clear basic rules. And it is clear when those rules are broken. The difference between that... And human rights is that human rights are not a clear system. It is a set of vaguely defined norms. If you read the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, it's 30 articles. For most people, certainly most Europeans or North Americans, they sound completely obvious and and clear. But once you start actually trying to define the specific words within the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, you get into all kinds of ambiguity and one person will interpret it in one way and the other person will interpret it in the other way. And the moment you have that ambiguity and you don't have a objective way to verify who is right and who is wrong, then it just becomes a tool in the hands of the powerful. And unfortunately, that's exactly what happened with human rights, that it sounds really nice if you don't think about it. But once you start clearly delving into what is actually meant here, you get into a very gray area and that means that those who do damage to the world can abuse it see and uh just just to be thought-provoking um let's do an experiment about this Uh, how would you how would you define freedom of freedom of expression well that's uh, exactly so we know that there are limits to freedom of expression because for example i'm not allowed to the the cliche example here is i'm not allowed to yell uh fire in a in a busy in a busy Shopping mall, because that could lead to stampede and could hurt people. And I could actually be arrested for that, for creating panic, even though it is just using my freedom of expression. Um, And there are other things that I, well, in in Germany, for example, I'm not actually sure about uh, Spain, but I'm not allowed to deny the Holocaust. Now, no sensible person would ever want to deny the Holocaust, because unfortunately, it absolutely did happen. To be clear about that, but there are limits to that freedom of expression, and then you get exactly into that kind of gray area, right?
0: Exactly, and this is the moment where you then have these, uh, yeah, when when you then have these arguments of, oh, my human rights are being violated. Why am I not allowed to deny the Holocaust? Which unfortunately still is a thing with uh, with. I mean, I hope it's a very, very low number of individuals that actually even live in Germany. And then, and then you hear these individuals are saying, oh, my human rights or my constitutional rights are being violated. I have freedom of expression. So I think this is a very nice example of how gray all of these areas are. And it's just one of the many elements that the that the, defini- that the definition just read out.
1: And what's really important here to remember from the question of what is the bubble perspective is that most people don't think about that that much. It, it sounds like human... So I, I should have checked this before recording this episode, but this was true a year ago. Listeners can check if it's still true. About a year ago, uh, before one of my classes, out of interest, I just checked the Wikipedia page on human rights. And it's a very long Wikipedia page with a lot of information. You know, Wikipedia can be quite interesting and quite useful in certain ways. Um, and the, 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 and I'm, exa- I'm not exaggerating. The segment on criticisms of human rights. So, you know, the the section where it says criticism was like two sentences long, or maybe three, not more than that. So you've got pages and pages of information about human rights and only three sentences on potential criticism of human rights. It's as if we are not to to criticize human rights because it's such an obvious dogma of everything that is good. And that is a problem because human rights are, being abused human rights do have a very negative impact in many situations on many situations not because there's anything wrong with having a value-based approach to the world but because they're being confused with actual rights that we have in a society such as a german or spanish or american society
0: so i mean uh, so i just did the life live check while, while you were elaborating and um, it's two sentences they're very long um <laughs> But, but they are two sentences. So they have uh, remained the English. say,
1: basically. Yeah.
0: Exactly. On the English-speaking page, uh, well, Wikipedia page on human rights. But
1: think about but it, think... How, how insane that is. Think about how crazy it is. And in Wikipedia, as every undergraduate student knows, is not a source of necessary truth, but it is certainly a useful source of information for millions of and millions of people, myself included, very often. Um, and to have such an important concept... With so many applications, because it's applied everywhere, and so many deeply ingrained emotional connections. People very deeply connect to the concept of human rights. The idea that there's only two or three sentences worth of criticism of that concept shows what an incredible dogma it has become. And that's a real shame, because we have to talk about the problems with human rights. Yeah.
0: And that's exactly what we're going to do now in our next category. What is the problem? However, before we 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 trash human rights even more and we we discuss how how problematic they are, uh, let's do this like uh, like U.S. presidential debates uh, where where now we have to say something positive about them.
1: It really isn't a problem, Dario, in the sense that uh, for me to be positive about the idea, and I, I've mentioned this in, uh, before. The idea of having an ambition as humanity to have certain values and to have a value based foreign policy, etc., all of those things make a lot of sense. It is good to focus on basic moral principles and to explain what those moral principles are and um, not just think in terms of economics or strategic interests or, you know, because that leads to horrible scenarios. So, in that sense, what I can say positively about human rights. Is that it is wonderful if we as humanity come together and we talk about and we agree on general broad ambitions of who we want to be as a global society. I think that's great. And if you human rights play an important part uh, in, in that conversation, the, the current version is, is, is a bit too Western for my liking. It's a bit too non-universal even though it's called the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, but the basic idea of it makes a lot of sense.
0: And I think that um, this is kind of going back to the episode we did on aid and development, where, I mean, we're not against cooperation, uh, international cooperation. It's just that uh, doing it with an agenda. And this also goes back to our introduction episode, where um, if you like a system or if you like an idea, you have to be able to criticize it in order to improve it. And uh, as you even mentioned uh, 20, 30 minutes ago, is that the first first step to improving something uh, is to actually acknowledging uh, the, the flaws of something. Um, but now that we we're positive, uh, let's go back to, um, to, to discussing the problems. Um, what's, what's, what's the, because we have a list, uh, we have a whole list of them. Uh, what's the first one you would want to discuss?
1: So, well, we've got, first, the, 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 at the core level, we've got a set of vaguely defined values that we are very passionate about People from all sides, with a few exceptions, but from all sides, always defend human rights as oh, human rights are being violated. We need to protect human rights as a as a deeply moral, almost uncriticizable um, concept. Well, as we just saw with Wikipedia, and yet in reality, the practical reality of human rights is that they are not clearly defined and they are not clearly enforced because there is no clear enforcer there's no objective enforcer and the result of that is that we've got an ambiguous term that we feel very strongly about but we don't really clearly explain what we mean by it by all those different ways uh, all those all those mixes of words together into a, a universal declaration and the result of that is that people who want to use it to their own advantage. Governments in particular can do so without um, breaking any of the basic principles that are put forward. So to give you an example, um, the United States, we talked already a lot about the war in Iraq in 2003, because I still think it's one of the most horrific recent examples of Western foreign policy. The invasion of Iraq in 2003 was often justified before and after, based on the idea that the Iraqi people were not um, enjoying the human rights that they were entitled to because of the dictator Saddam Hussein. And so by saying, as the United States government or European governments, we're going to defend human rights in Iraq, they justified a horrendous foreign policy project that led to incredible suffering. By using the word human rights, the word human rights to criticize China, they deflect from their own strategic interest with respect to China, and they they just portray China without actually having to be very clear about what it is that they are criticizing and what they're gonna do about it. They portray China as a country that continuously violates human rights, and thereby they put themselves on the moral pedestal pedestal um, that can speak from a sense of moral authority down onto Beijing and other like-minded nations. And that's very problematic. So it becomes a control mechanism for Western thinking and Western policymaking.
0: Exactly. It's this, we basically invented these human rights. Uh, We obviously respect them on all levels. So we get to call the rest of the world out and potentially even enforce them uh, in, in some ways. And
1: we are inherently there for justifying what we do. Yes, we, make, uh, we can make a few mistakes here and there. We can accidentally bomb some Iraqi civilians, but overall, we are the ones on the right side of history. We are the ones defending everything that is good about our human future. And those evil regimes in Iraq and China and Syria and Libya that we are fighting are morally repulsive for not respecting human rights without anyone ever actually specifically defining what we mean by human rights. Because if you start specifically defining it, you will notice that the West also continuously breaks them and China isn't always that bad.
0: Exactly, um, which is the the next point on our list of, of criticisms or problems is the hypocrisy involved in all of this. Uh, I mean, we... I mean, earlier we, we did a thought experiment of how many can we come up in a, in a, in a few minutes um, for the structure of this episode, and the list goes on. Uh, I mean, just, just to name a few recent ones, so you have the, I mean, to make it even more worse and more specific, the U.S. torturing uh, individuals in Iraq, uh, then let's make it more clear, you have Guantanamo. So I think you have this level of hypocrisy, which uh, is, is making matters worse, if anything. Yeah.
1: And, and 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 then if you if you look at the very nature of the Universal Declaration and for example that it's 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 clearly pro democracy it it Article Twenty One um, and I think we can pull it up if necessary but it, it it's clearly basically saying everyone shall live in a democracy is basically saying everyone shall be like us um, everyone will follow our schedule everyone will follow our structure. Um, it, it it is not just that we are being hypocritical but those situations where we're not being hypocritical are because we basically shaped it in our own image and that's that's a really easy way then than to um to actually follow the rules of the, the the badly defined but broad rules of human rights right however um I, I can give more examples of hypocrisy article 22 for example uh, 20, sorry, 24. Uh, talks about uh, working hours and, and that everyone has, um, should have a reasonable limitation of working hours, which goes back all the way to the 19th century, by the way, and the unionization and the defense of working people, the working class during the Industrial Revolution. Um, with holidays with pay. Well, if you look at the United States at the moment, I wouldn't call that reasonable limitation of working hours. And I think Americans should get quite a few more holidays during the year that they're not getting. But that exactly shows the problem because it's not well-defined.
0: And students during exam season. Uh, yeah, no, we students have during have exam season
1: well. have to work just 24 hours a day. Come on, no sleep, just <laughs> Red Bull and get on with it.
0: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Um, then, exactly, get on with it, uh, moving on, on on our list of, uh, of criticisms and problems, uh, the politicization of human rights, it's, uh, to, to me, it's it's crazy how, how it's just such a such a political movement, it's, I mean, because you, you mentioned how there are criticisms on China, there are criticisms on Iran, but then when there's an actual benefit to having relations with a the country, then suddenly these Criticisms, you know, we will not mention them as much. Uh, looking at, for example, Saudi Arabia here uh, compared to Iran.
1: But that's that's a common threat, right? And that's that we we very carefully choose when we apply it and when we don't. And we will apply it to Vladimir Putin at the moment because that's easy. But we're not going to apply it to Mohammed bin Salman, the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia. That's that's a that's a very common threat in 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 Western foreign policy. And that exact exactly is once again an example of something like human rights that doesn't have clearly defined terms and that doesn't have a a authority, an objective authority that determines when they're being broken and when they're not being broken and when they need to be enforced and when they're not being enforced. When you leave this up to specific governments, they will use it in their own interests, obviously. And this is something where if you ask me, okay, so are human rights... Um, completely useless. No, because if they inspire a national government to enshrine certain rights that we first developed at a global level, now they enshrine it into their own national legal system. Wonderful, great. Like the European Court of Justice uses human rights uh, and has used human rights to inspire its own laws and often applies some concepts of human rights. If they do that, brilliant. But let's not use them to judge others, let's not use them to portray certain other countries in a bad light. Let's use them to strengthen our own society and our own systems, rather than pretend that we are knights protecting, protecting some kind of objective set of values globally.
0: And with this, I mean, looking into uh, how this has been applied uh, successfully and, and what, what human rights could serve as, uh, I think it's the time to move into the next category, what now? And here we want to discuss, I mean, I think that the first question we can put out there, we, we briefly answered it before, but let's let's pinpoint it. Is there still value? Like, is there value in the human rights? Like, what do we do with them now?
1: There's absolutely value in in having a conversation based on, value, on, on universal principles, on, on morality. Let's talk about morality. Not that it's very easy to ever pin down specifically. I don't think we will ever be able to do that. And and that's where why we should know the limits of human rights and the limits of the idea of natural law. But uh, the idea of having a conversation globally and also at the national level about what are the main values that we want to espouse, what are the main values that we want to promote in our own society, is a very, very, very good conversation to have. Value based conversations are great, but let's not pretend that they lead to some kind of objective, universally applicable rule set, because without a global authority, you will never have such a rule set. And it leads to abuse by those who have the power to do so. And that means that it just becomes yet another tool um, to strengthen those that shouldn't be strengthened any further.
0: So, so, one part when it comes to, to what now, uh, I think a first step could be, and I would be very interested in, in this actually, in actually seeing this, is because when the Universal Declaration of Human Rights were first voted on, uh, you had 58 members of the United Nations, 48 voted in favor, none voted against, and uh, eight abstained while two didn't vote. Uh, would maybe a first step be uh, having everyone vote on it now, 193 countries? Uh, and see and see what the result would be here
1: well this this would be uh, a, a very good example of where the journey is more important than the destination i think that would be a really interesting conversation to be had i don't think it would lead to a particularly useful or practical set of new newly defined human rights because i think what you will notice is that countries, governments will not be able to agree. Uh, China will not be able to agree with the, the United States. But having that conversation is great. And to scrap the now 70-year-old declaration and say, OK, that is no longer applicable uh, to the 2022 would be very, very useful. That, that would not deny that over these past 70 years, it has been enshrined in many governments in a practical, legal and productive way. Um, right? So I think having, having a conversation about what do we as global society want to achieve in the next 50 or 100 years would be a brilliant conversation to have had. And I would love the United Nations to spend some time on that. but that's not going to lead to some kind of new order because uh, you can't the, you can only do that in very broad terms. so you can probably agree that we want to we want to promote peace in the world. We want to promote prosperity in the world. All those kind of things most countries would agree on. Uh, Cooperation, also everyone likes cooperation. But the moment then you ask, okay, what kind of cooperation, what kind of prosperity and what kind of peace, that becomes a whole different thing. And and that's where it falls apart. Uh, Why it was possible in 1948 was that this was after the Second World War, before colonial independence, uh, when the world was still very much run by a very small, select, and mostly like-minded group of countries. Um, that is no longer the case nowadays. It sh- I should point out, by the way, talking about hypocrisy, and I'm, I'm sorry to go back a little bit here, I hope you'll forgive me, Dario, uh, that um, in the, 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 the years leading up to 1648, so exactly when, the, when these countries and the United Nations were being set up and these countries were talking about what should the Universal Declaration look like, this was also the time of the Nuremberg trials. And the Nuremberg trials go directly against a lot of the human rights uh, in uh, enumerated into the Universal Declaration. There was no, uh, there was no neutral, objective system. The, the The judges were all coming from the Allies. Uh, Allied generals weren't being judged. So, you know, t- it is clear that sixteen forty eight was a, uh, sorry nineteen forty eight was a very specific time period in which the west completely dominated international relations they had just the united states britain france had just won the second world war and they could basically do whatever they liked if we now go they could be hypocritical with the nuremberg trials while at the same time acting as if they were the harbingers of a new global university just order that is not possible nowadays anymore but please let's have that conversation
0: um, exactly, this is a conversation that the two of us are going to have soon, uh, because I think we already agreed that we will uh, devote a, a separate uh, episode just just uh, when come well just about Victor's justice. So we will definitely discuss the Nuremberg trials uh, at length. Okay, so so to summarize, basically, what do we do from here on? Uh, is first, I, I would like to see uh, the the current U N General Assembly vote on this, just for personal entertainment. Um, <laughs> But then we need to we need to start having uh, as a society and as a here as a global society a conversation. Okay, what values does it actually hold? I mean, what also reoccurred was this theme of that they are too vague, so they need to, if anything, they need to be more specific. And in the end, um, they cannot be a judgment mechanism for anyone but Western Western nations in particular. Is there anything else that I forgot that kind of summarizes um, what we've discussed here?
1: No, I, I think that's 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 about it. Um, going back, I think, to the early philosophical conversations that, that were the starting point of this path to where we are now is the conversation about natural rights in general, whether human beings have rights beyond what society determines for them. Um, is interesting, um, except for the word rights. And I think what we we talking about values and what values we would like our society to hold or any society to hold towards the individual is great, but the word right has confused us mightily over the past few hundred years. And it suggests that there is something that practically just doesn't exist uh, if there is no global authority. So without a global authority, we should stop having this conversation about rights as such, and let's talk about natural values natural laws that we believe human beings should have uh, independent of the government they they're part of but they will never be implemented in any practical legal sense and we should accept that
0: and this seems like a great moment to end today's conversation on human rights if you have any questions comments or regards make sure to send us an email to thewesternbubble at gmail.com and we will try to incorporate them in our following episodes Thank you very much to the listeners for joining us today. Make sure to join us again next week when we burst the Western bubble. That is it from my side. Um, Paul, which closing quote did you bring for us today?
1: So I chose for today a quote by David Hume, who um, I've got many problems with uh, in terms of his writing, but who was a very intelligent man as well, and who understood also the dangers of a emphasis on natural rights without social or objective structures to impose those rights. Um, and as a result he's very much on the opposite side of the spectrum of modern day, if you like, um, libertarians, hardcore libertarians, particularly in the United States, who see human rights and natural laws as a way to undermine the governments that exist. And David Hume um, very ele- elegantly and eloquently wrote a lot about this and how this is a danger because it le- leads to anarchy. Uh, this quote, is indirectly related to that beauty is no quality in things themselves it exists merely in the mind which contemplates them and each mind perceives a different beauty